Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. In our previous episode, Rod Dreher and I were speaking about his new book, Live Not by Lies. Rod had shared with us some of the critical issues facing our nation as we drift towards a kind of soft totalitarianism. In this episode, we are going to discuss the solutions which may be possible. We rejoin the interview. I appreciate that you talk so much in your book about solutions that we should pursue or potential solutions, even though they are not easy and they are not comfortable. Uh, I'd like to discuss some of those with you now. Uh, The first one is that we must, quote, value nothing more than we value the truth, unquote. So given the fact that a large percentage of young people in the United States reject the very existence of actual truth, how do you advise that we should pursue this important action? Boy, that's that's huge. Um, and the fact that they va- they don't even believe that there is a such thing as objective truth, only opinions and only power, tells you how far down we've gone towards totalitarianism. Because that's how the totalitarians gain power. If you don't believe there's truth, only power, well then, of course, you have nothing to stand on, to stand against them. I believe that we have to, first of all, uh, teach ourselves what is true and how we know truth. We have to teach it to our children and we have to live and we have to embed ourselves within communities that know right and wrong and are not afraid to proclaim right and wrong. Uh, I was criticized by my, in my book, The Benedict Option. Some people wrongly said that I was urging Christians to head for the hills and build bunkers. That's not it at all. What I was doing was encouraging Christians to build these tight communities uh, within the world, because most of us do live within the world and are always going to live within the world. But in order to represent Christ when we go out into the world, and in order not to be overcome by the world and to have our minds clouded by the world's propaganda, we have to live within communities, strong communities of truth. And uh, the I say value nothing more than the truth, because this is what I heard from talking to all these people in Eastern Europe uh, who were dissidents. And not only that, but reading some of the dissident literature, even by non-believers like Václav Havel, the leader of the dissident community in Czech Republic, all of them said that you have to be, you have to know what the truth is because, and the truth will set you free to take a stand. And if you don't know what truth is or don't care what truth is, you're going to be easily manipulated. But if you value nothing more than truth, then you have strong, firm ground in which to stand to fight the lies. Another step that you highlight is something you call to cultivate cultural memory. And you quote uh, the party slogan in Oceania from Orwell's 1984, quote, who controls the past controls the future, who controls the present controls the past, unquote. And that would require, of course, that the controllers of the present are willing to deny reality and lie to the people about the past. But we do see a growing political movement eager to do exactly that. How do we cultivate cultural memory? 
you know, you asked the question and it brings to mind a story I tell in the book about a conversation I had with a 26-year-old woman from California who mentioned that she thought communism was a great idea, that, uh, you know, isn't it wonderful, the brotherhood of man and all that? I looked at her and said, well, what do you make of the gulags? She said, what's that? And I had to explain to her what the gulags were. Clay, she had no idea about what the Soviet Union really meant, what communism and power really meant. And this ignorance of the past, the, the fact that this had been scrubbed from her cultural memory, or rather never put in there by schools or her parents or by this culture, uh, was le left her completely vulnerable to these lies. Cultural memory is the first thing that totalitarians go for. When I say cultural memory, I mean the memory that we all share as members of a particular culture that tell us who we are. It includes historical fact, but it also includes the stories that are meaningful to us. It can include our religious faith. It can include holidays. It includes statues, things like that. In the communist countries, the first thing they did to try to gain control of the people was to burn the history books, scrub the records of anything that was uh, that opposed the communist view, and to propagandize the people so they wouldn't remember who they were. Uh, I, this man in Budapest I talked to, he's in the book, uh, he said that uh, you know, this has happened even since the fall of communism, that victorious capitalism, which he's happy to have, and democracy has been great, but so many uh, contemporary Hungarians, Hungarians born after the fall of communism, they don't even know about what happened in the past there because they don't care about it. All they can do is look to the future. Memories of the past just hold them down. I think what we have to do is what, is what these dissidents did under communism. Bring people together to talk about the things that make us who we are as a people. We have to encourage the reading of books that tell true history and true stories. We have to pass these stories on among ourselves and to our children. Because if we don't, uh, we're just giving power to those who would control our kids. And it, it sounds like such a vague abstract thing, controlling cultural memory or, or, or cultivating cultural memory, but it's something as simple as reading to our kids. There's a story in the book about this woman, Camilla Bendeva, in Prague, a real hero of the book. Her husband went to prison as, uh, for four years as a political prisoner for fighting the government. They're a Christian family. And while he was in prison, even before then, she would come home every night and read to their six kids for two hours a day. I said, what would you read? She said, I would read to them myths. I would read to them the classics. And I read to them Tolkien. I said, Tolkien, why Tolkien? She said, because we knew that Mordor was real. And we knew that the struggle of the elves and the dwarfs and the men against Sauron and again, was our story too. Well, of course, they, they weren't, there weren't elves in, in Bohemia, but you know what she's saying there, that this story, this fight for liberty against evil, even if it occurs in history and in, when it occurs in literature, these are the sort of things that we have to fill our moral imaginations with so we can remember who we are when they hit us with these lies that tell, you know, tell lies about who Amer what America is and what Christians are and so on and so forth. We have to be armed with the memories to say, no, this is a lie. You're, you're lying to us and trying to deceive us. I loved that story as well. And I'm a Tolkien fan and I really, really loved her answer to you. We knew Mordor is real. I think Americans don't know Mordor is real. Um, you highlight also the, the fact that families 
are resistance cells to authoritarian control. And I reflect on this sad fact that in the United States right now, there's a very noteworthy organization raking in hundreds of millions of dollars for their expressly stated purpose of dissolving the nuclear family. What is the best way for Americans in particular to strengthen families against the onslaught of leftism or totalitarianism? Well, this might sound funny, but I think the best thing we could do is not give our kids smartphones. I mean, it's incredible the stories I hear from people, Clay, about how their kids' minds were colonized by the smartphones and also the internet before they're able to handle it. And I'm not talking simply about pornography. I'm talking about the way that uh, smartphones and engagement with the internet tends to pull kids away from their families. And it propagandizes kids to hate their parents and to hate everything that they their parents are trying to teach them. I know so many Christian conservative parents who believe all the right things, go to church and, you know, look out at the culture war and want to take the right side. And yet they're giving the enemy access to their children through the Internet and smartphones. It's crazy. So that is the most important thing we can do. Second of all, we have to prioritize treating the family like, a, I guess you could say, a domestic monastery, treating the home like a domestic monastery, in the sense that we need to raise our kids with the, with the knowledge that the family is, has their primary loyalty. Of course, God has their primary loyalty, but after God, the family exists to, to function, to, to form uh, our children for living in the world as faithful Christians and as good citizens and so on. We have to build that kind of solidarity and resist the forces that are trying to tear us apart. You caution that a time of painful testing and possible oppression is coming for Western Christians. And you've hinted at that uh, earlier in our discussion that uh, this can be coming our way and that those who are lukewarm will not survive it with their faith intact. And I was reminded of God's warning to the church in Laodicea in the third chapter of Revelation, quote, because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you are pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, end quote. What would you tell Christians, Rod Dreher, to do in light of what seems to be coming? Well, we are Laodiceans. We really are. We've had it so easy in America for so long as Christians. You know, the culture had been generally Christian for since the founding of the country. That doesn't exist anymore. Our churches have become very rich and prosperous in many cases. We're going to lose that. It's going to all fall away. And we're going to be tested then. Will we stand with the Lord when it's going to cost us? Will we stand with, with what the Lord teaches us uh, is true and right and just when it's going to cost us our jobs, when it's going to cost us social status? The stories I got, Clay, from all of these people, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox in the Eastern Bloc, were all the same thing, that if you're not willing to suffer, your faith means nothing. I talked to this one Russian Baptist pastor, an old white-haired man whose, mother, whose father had been thrown into the gulag by Stalin. And he's still alive today. This man, Yuri Sipko, leads Baptist in Russia. And he said, point blank, he said, if I, I tell people, if you're not willing to suffer, your faith is nothing but hypocrisy. He said, I ask young people, name three things that you're willing to die for. And if you can't name one of them, 
And if the first one is not Jesus Christ, then your faith is nothing but psychological comfort and it's going to be burned away from you. I would tell Christians to please, please turn away from the, the social gospel on the left and the prosperity gospel on the right. Please don't think either that voting a certain way is going to keep this trial from coming. I think voting is important. I intend to vote with the, with the judiciary in mind, with the Supreme Court in mind, the federal judiciary, because I believe that will be the last line of defense in the coming decades for conservative Christians. Nevertheless, I, I do not comfort myself by thinking that if we just get the politics and the judges right, then everything will be okay. This is going to be a trial that's going to come to us in very subtle ways. It's going to come to us in our schools, in our workplaces, in our families, and in our churches, when our churches are threatened with the loss of, of tax-exempt status, which is, for many churches that are right on the line, this could mean the, uh, the price between surviving or closing. But we have to get ready for it. I mean, the Lord promised us nothing but a cross. And, and I think that this might sound gloomy to a lot of Christians, but I say for Christians, we're not called to be optimistic. Optimists think that everything's going to work out well in the end. Don't worry about it. We're actually called to be hopeful. Christian hope tells us that things might work out in the end, and we have to pray for that and hope for that. But if they don't, if we are in fact called to be martyrs for the faith, if we have offered our suffering to Christ and for the salvation of the world joined to Christ, then the Lord can use it for the redemption of others. I look at all these people I talk to who suffered in prison, some of them uh, for the faith. To me as a Christian, they're still alive. They're given their testimony and it encourages me. It humbles me and it encourages me so much for what's ahead. These people are using the suffering that they went through as faithful Christians and endured back under communism to be a light to the world now in this time of, uh, of a shadow falling across our land. We have to listen to them. Well, I, I appreciate that so much, Rod Dreher. And uh, the penultimate chapter in your book you call The Gift of Suffering. It is a bitter pill, but I appreciate that you put it in terms that we can understand of this uh, is by design and is necessary, and we have victory assured to us. Um, so the final question that I wanted to ask you, you've issued to all of us a very difficult and a strong challenge in this book, Live Not By Lies. I really do thank you for that. Uh, the question is, do you believe that we will answer that challenge correctly and successfully? I think some of us will, Clay. Uh, I think most of the church will fall away because what's being revealed now is the decadence that we've allowed to set in over the decades. And I'm not talking about other people, so I'm talking about myself. You know, I, I've taken so much for granted that our forefathers fought for and obtained for us, and tried to pass along to us. Maybe we weren't faithful in receiving it, but we can't dwell on past failures. What we can do is be cognizant of what's really happening now and vow to repent of our own la spiritual laziness, moral laziness, and go forward and accept this challenge as free men and women and as Christian men and women. I think that, uh, most Christians will fall away. Most Christians will compromise. As the people I talked to, by the way, in Eastern Europe said, told me over and over, they said, <clears throat> don't think that we, that everybody was like us. They weren't. Most people capitulated. 
Most people conformed. Most Christians kept their heads down and said, we'll just be quiet and not say anything and hope the bad people will go away. Um, I think that's human nature. And I think it's going to be the nature of American people. But I publish this book now and I write this book and offer this book in the hopes that those who have ears to hear will hear. They'll hear the message of warning. They'll hear the call to holiness and will stand up. And one thing I learned, too, from this experience, Clay, is that when you stand up, even if you're the only one standing there in front of the crowd, if you're standing for Christ, others will see you and they will take heart from it and they will be emboldened too, and maybe they'll join you. Maybe uh, the, the strongest form of witness available to us as Christians in the coming era will not so much be sharing the word of God, that we have to keep doing that, but maybe the strongest form of witness will be simply being steadfast against the, the, the attacks from the world and uh, being willing to bear any burden for the sake of being faithful to our Lord. That's the call, and those who have ears to hear, as I said, let them hear. Well, thank you so much, Rod Raren. Highest recommendation possible for this book, Live Not by Lies. Uh, listeners, it is very much well worth your time. God bless you and have a great day. Thank you, brother. Now it's time for our special historical segment featuring a practical example of how core principles are applied. On the 20th of October, 1864, Thanksgiving became an official holiday in the United States following President Abraham Lincoln's proclamation of the 3rd of October. It is noteworthy that Lincoln's proclamation was 74 years to the day after President Washington's Thanksgiving proclamation. Here is an excerpt from Lincoln's Thanksgiving proclamation. The year that is drawing to a close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and even soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to every watchful providence of Almighty God. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea, and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. Keep in mind that this was at the height of the bloody civil war. It is always, always, always appropriate to thank God and to praise God. How blessed we are to live in a nation based on God's sovereignty. May we never stray from those core, unchanging, foundational principles of this great nation. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.